Commencing reading, Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 1. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mold against it. Set camps also against it and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face towards it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Verse 4. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. And you shall set your face towards the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bowed, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place courts upon you, so that you cannot turn from one side to the other, till you have completed the days of your siege. The next passage is from Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 5 to 17. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem, I set her in the center of the nations, with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations, and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are, are all around you, and you have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules, and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are, are all around you, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you. And I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments on you and any of you who survive, I was scattered to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. 
my eyes were not spared, and I have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence, and will and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you. And a third part I will scatter to all the winds, and will unsheath the sword against them. Thus shall my anger spent itself, and I will vent my fury upon them, and satisfy myself. And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you, and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgment on you in anger and fury and with, and with furious rebukes. I am the Lord, I have spoken. When I send against you the daily arrows of famines, arrows for destruction which I was sent to destroy you, and I, when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Please turn to the last passage of Ezekiel, and that is to Ezekiel chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. Ezekiel 7 verse 1 The word of the Lord came to me and and you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel. And end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus said the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God. Disasters after disaster. Behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It has awakened you against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitants of the land. The time has come. The day is near, a day of tumult, and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Verse 8. And I will soon pour out my wrath upon you, and spend my anger against you, and judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 30 and 31. Verse 10, 
For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Esley Church. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors of the church, and it's my joy and privilege to be able to bring us and share with us the word today from Ezekiel chapters 4 to 7. So it'd be really helpful for you to have your Bibles at home with you. A physical Bible would be best as you open it up so you can quickly glance and we'll be walking through uh, the chapters. I'll be making references to them and reading out some portions as well. And so it'd be really helpful for you to have your Bibles open in front of you. A couple of quick announcements before we begin. In the last couple of years, uh, we at Esley Church have been seeking to hire a, a third pastor. Uh, we've noticed various particular needs and what we thought um, we, we wanted for the future. But over the last 18 months, God has done a great work to reveal to us what we actually need versus what we want. Um, we have particular needs in the short term and the long term. And instead of just hiring a third pastor for a church plant in the future, we believe that God is showing us that we really are in need of an executive pastor. Now, an executive pastor sounds like a very big job. It sounds like a, a job, uh, a position of someone who is actually in charge, uh, someone who would actually be over Pastor Ben as senior pastor. But rest, be rest, uh, rest assured uh, that Pastor Ben will retain his senior pastor title and will continue to be the senior pastor of our church. Executive pastors help with the running of the church, particularly the administration. Our church administrator, Winnie Chan, takes care of the on-ground practical administration and an executive pastor will take care of the broader running of the church pastorally and theologically. At the previous annual general meeting, Pastor Ben mentioned that our search for this role has led us to one of our elders, Randy Chan. Many of you already know Randy and we've been blessed by his ministry uh, in chairing SLE Church services, uh, as well as an elder of our church and the, one of the leaders at uh, SOS on the South Side. Randy's particular gifts and skill sets, with Randy's particular gifts and skill sets, we believe that he is the best person uh, for this position uh, in terms of the role but also within our church uh, in terms of the relationships that are already established. So over the past few weeks, we've had opportunities to chat with particular members of a church and other members and other attendees and other leaders as well. And we are glad to report back that there is fairly unanimous um, uh, uh, support for Randy's appointment. Uh, the AGM coming up will give us an opportunity to continue to pray for this appointment, as well as to ask questions that we may have in the interim. So on the 29th of August, we have set the AGM. It's a Sunday. It's going to be at 8 p.m. and over Zoom. Uh, along with some other points of discussion, it shouldn't be a long meeting. So all the members of our church are expected to attend and to be in attendance with the same proxy rules that apply to the annual general meeting. Please continue to pray for this appointment and I'm excited and I know the leadership and the staff team are very excited about this appointment and the possibilities that it gives us to continue growing uh, as a church together. Uh, another quick announcement uh, about this sermon before we get into it is simply this. I know a lot of us are feeling tired and weary. Pastor Ben has recently uh, sent out the pastor's desk. It's very encouraging, so I highly encourage all of us to have a listen to that. Um, all of us are feeling tired and weary. Uh, a number of us are already feeling the strain, have been feeling the strain of the lockdown and the extensions of the lockdowns and all the various restrictions. 
This passage today is a weighty, weighty passage. It's a weighty sermon and it needs to be because this is a heavy passage. The complacency and shallowness of some of our understandings, uh, the complacency and shallowness of some people's faith needs to be uh, corrected and it needs to be pushed up against. Some of us, however, uh, we note uh, are in need of richer, uh, um, richer hope. Uh, richer hope in the times of their trials and the valleys that you're presently in. So I do hope and pray that even in the heaviness of today's message, we will see the brighter light of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Before we begin, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks so much for your goodness and kindness to us in giving us your word, in speaking to us, in speaking encouragements to give us, to lift us, in speaking words to grow our understanding and knowledge of yourself. And for even these words here, these words which seem so heavy and so terrifying, we pray that our hearts would be soft to receive them, that we would have ears to hear, and that we would respond in faith and repentance. Ultimately, we pray, Father, that you'll help us to do all of these things to glorify you, Help me to speak clearly from this as I ought, for we ask these things all in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and through him. Amen. In 2001, Stuart Townen and Keith Getty sat down to write their first song together. The song they produced? In Christ Alone. It's hard to believe that it's 20 years old this year. It quickly rose in popularity, and though it was written 20 years ago, it is considered a classic with broad appeal for its music and its lyrics. But not everyone is happy with it. In 2013, a denomination in the US wanted to change some of the lyrics. In the second verse of the song, we generally sing, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The change proposed was this, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Is that a bad change? Well, bigger question is why did they propose this change? It was those two words in the second line, the wrath of God was satisfied. These two words teach a doctrine that we call penal substitutionary atonement. It was those two words that were at stake in the controversy. This penal substitutionary atonement is a big way of saying that the primary reason that Jesus died on the cross was to turn God's wrath and anger away from us and onto himself. Jesus dies as a substitute for us in our place. This particular denomination was already well into a trajectory of rejecting this crucial doctrine. God's judgment and wrath against sin was offensive to them. It was an unpalatable doctrine. So over time, they had gone from questioning it to denying it to outright rejecting it. But here's the thing. You cannot fully understand the cross of Christ without first understanding God's holiness and his hatred and wrath towards sin. In today's passage, the wrath of God is inescapable. The purpose of this passage is also crystal clear. God reveals his wrath and anger in his judgment so that Israel will know that he is God. 
And the structure of our passage is pretty straightforward. In chapter 4, verse 1 to 5, verse 4, God makes Ezekiel perform four visual prophecies. In the second half, in 5, 5 to the end of chapter 7, God gives Ezekiel a long and detailed description of how thorough his judgment will be. And in the middle of it all, we hear a refrain that comes up again and again and again. All of this is happening so that you shall know that I am the Lord. The question we have to ask ourselves ourselves is the same. When we hear all these things, will we recognize that Yahweh is king? Or will we ignore these warnings to our own peril? We begin our first scene with God speaking and speaking and instructing Ezekiel. What he's told to do is unique to his ministry. So we should be careful of drawing parallels between Ezekiel's ministry as a prophet and our own ministry. Yeah, there may be some parallels. Ezekiel's, Ezekiel's ministry was to preach God's word faithfully and to live faithfully for God, despite the difficulty of a rebellious people who would not listen. But there are distinct differences which make drawing any parallels less appropriate. A distinct difference between us and Ezekiel are these here visual prophecies and uh, that he goes through. Now, a visual prophecy is a sort of dramatic performance, a design to give visual impact and emphasis intended to persuade the audience into believing and changing their behavior. And this dramatic visualization is designed to arouse a great deal of curiosity. So this is what Ezekiel does. He takes a brick. He carves a, the city of Jerusalem into it, sort of like a 3D Google map uh, of the city. And then he sets up this, a siege surrounding the city. Now, a siege happens when foreign army sets up camp around a city. The idea is that the army surrounds the city and then waits, cutting off escape and food supplies coming in. The idea was to starve a city into surrendering. Sometimes if a city had lots of food supply and fresh water supply, these sieges could last for years. Ezekiel also adds up a cast, uh, adds up a cast up mound in verse two, which is basically a ramp leading up on one side. And so this siege is pictured as one which will not only surround, but also invade and break down and smash this city. This little 3D model of the city represents the God's certain judgment of his people. There will be no escape. And then Ezekiel is to grab an iron griddle, which is basically a big flat iron frying pan. And he props it up as a wall between him and the 3D model. Ezekiel is to lie down facing the model and with that iron griddle between them. He faces the city as a sign that God is against Jerusalem. He is not passively letting some invading army take his people. He is actively working against them. And there is dividing wall between he and his people. God is against you. Who can be for you? Speaking of lying down, God next tells Ezekiel to lie down on his side. In four, chapter 4, verses 4 to 8, Ezekiel will spend 390 days on his left side and then a th further 40 days on his right side. Now, I don't think we're meant to read this to say that uh, for 430 days, Ezekiel was lying down continuously. It's probable that he did so for a few hours a day and in a place to maximize the impact of the message. Now, why does he spend 430 days lying on his side? Chapter 4, verse 4, and chapter 4, verse 6, so that he can bear their punishment. 
Now, he's not bearing their sin in the sense that Ezekiel is taking their punishment. Uh, There's no forgiveness in this picture. Ezekiel lying down for this period of time doesn't prevent or divert the coming judgment. The purpose of this visual prophecy is to is to illustrate how much sin has been accumulating for Israel. 430 days for Ezekiel, representing 430 years of sin building up, year after year, chances after chances to repent and turn things around. But for 430 years, Israel has been accumulating sin, depositing sins into a bank account, building up a massive ledger for which they cannot repay. And at the end, God will heap upon them the punishment that all that unrepentance deserves. 430 years of wandering away from God. But do you hear the parallel as well? Do you hear an echo from the past? 430 years here in Ezekiel parallels the 430 years of Israel's time in Egypt before the Exodus. Is there a hopeful musical note being played here? A hope that Israel's judgment will end in a glorious moment like the Exodus? But before our minds can wonder, the music shifts back to the drama. While Ezekiel spends his days lying on his side, he will also enjoy a rather interesting diet. For the duration of this visual prophecy, he will have a diet restricted to bread and water. How much bread? Chapter 4, verse 10, 20 shekels a day, which is around 225 grams or 9 slices of bread. How much water? Chapter 4, verse 11, a sixth of a hin, or roughly 600 mils, depending on your calculations and the um, the weights and tables that you use, or a bottle of Coke. This is near a near starvation diet. The strict rations of wartime, small and poor in quality and taste. On top of that, Ezekiel is ordered to cook it in an unclean way, over human feces. This act is to symbolize the defiled food that Israel will eat when they are in exile. Now, if that sounds disgusting, it surely is. Ezekiel pushes back a little bit, saying in chapter 4, verse 14, that he's he's never defiled himself with unclean food before. And so God grants him a, a sort of reprieve and allows him to bake the bread over cow dung. I'm not sure that's any better, but again, it's a disgusting, unpalatable unclean picture. And sure enough, in verses uh, chapter 4, verse 16 to 17, God makes it clear why this is happening. God is going to break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat in anxiety and drink in dismay. It's all part of God's judgment on them. As if lying down and diet is not enough, God takes it one more step further with the visual prophecies. He tells Ezekiel to take a sword and cut off all of his hair and his beard. Taking some balances, he is to carefully weigh all of that cut hair and divide it into three portions. One for burning up in fire, one for being cut up with a sword in front of people, and one third to be scattered in the wind. All of this is to symbolize the judgment to come. Fire and 
sword symbols of God's fiery and brutal judgment on his people. The hair to be scattered that like he will scatter his people in exile. Some hair is put in Ezekiel's pocket, a remnant which is set aside, but they are not free from danger as some are taken out again and put into the fire. The care taken in meticulously weighing out his hair tells Israel that God's judgment will not be delivered haphazardly. It will not be made up on the go, but is meticulously measured against his people. Four visual prophecies telling Israel of the destruction that was to come telling Israel of the terror that awaited them for the, their accumulated sins. When God is against you, who can stand for you? Now, when my children do something wrong, there is punishment and discipline, and there's also an explanation. And we explain to our children not only what they did wrong, but the heart of the issue as well. So even for our young Ellie, who's five years old, we need to gently show her the gravity of her sins against others and, most of all, the gravity of her sin against God. In chapter 5, verses 5 to 17, God explains again the gravity of their sins against him. The reason for Israel's devastation becomes clear. They have broken their covenant relationship with him. Chapter 5, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her, and she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations, and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have walked, not walked in my statutes. You see there firstly in verse 5, the personal relationship that God had with Israel. He personally set Jerusalem in the middle of all the other nations. He made a personal covenant with them, a commitment to be their God. They, they were to be a light in a dark world, a nation that displayed God's glory and drew people to her. But instead of being a light, they were the worst neighbors ever. Not only did they behave badly, but they were worse than their neighbors. You see that there in verse 6, that they not only rebelled against God and his rules, his laws and his ways, they, were, they did more wickedness than the nations surrounding them. They had broken the covenant. The rest of chapter 5 goes on in great detail about the judgment that God will bring down upon Israel. And again and again, we read that what they have done to earn this. And even though Israel had broken their end of the covenant, God would not break his. As we read chapter 5, the judgment laid out is fierce, but it is the judgment of God who is being faithful to his end of the covenant. Now, up on the screen now, you'll see a list of the curses that God will rain down upon Israel in this chapter. And to the left, you'll see the exact same promises promised curses for breaking the covenant. Ezekiel 5 is written and deeply informed by the language of Leviticus 26. God was keeping his covenant to bless Israel for obedience and curse Israel for disobedience. The judgment coming on that city was not some random afflictions thought up on the spur of the moment as if God had wildly lost his temper and is thrashing about. They are the execution of intentional and set curses on his covenant breakers. 
God was remaining faithful to his covenant when Israel was unfaithful. But in the face of curses, who can stand? The eye of God's judgment expands its views in chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. The thoroughness and the comprehensiveness of the devastation moves from the city to the land of Israel. In chapter 6, verse 2, Ezekiel is to now face the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. Now, the reference to the mountains is important here. Jerusalem it was a city on a hill surrounded by a hill country. Throughout Israel's history, their borders expanded and contracted, but the hill country was always home turf. Here, exactly on home turf, the problem of idolatry and rebellion had penetrated deeply. Notice the reference at the end of chapter 6, verse 3 to the high places. It was on these mountains, these hills surrounding Jerusalem, that Israel had set up false idols and foreign gods. See, this is personal to God. We live in a pluralistic, multicultural, multi-religious society, and it's good. It is good that, he, that we are respectful of others' beliefs, and I do believe that we can, as humans, live in respectful harmony with each other in our communities. But we must not mistake this crucial fact. God will not tolerate the worship of other gods among his people. Other so-called gods did not create the world. They did not call Abraham out of the wilderness and into relationship with him. They did not rescue Israel out of, the Egypt with, out of Egypt with signs and wonders. They did not covenant with Israel in a special way, making them unique among all the nations of the world. To worship anything other than God is to look at the generous giver of all things, to slap away his hand that gives and to spit on his grace. We must be so careful to not worship the gods of this world, the idols of this world, or even the idols or to elevate the idols of our cultural values above God's values. God will not tolerate these idols. So as an act of judgment, God was going to slay his people and leave their dead bodies littered around these false idols. You, you see this there in, in chapter 6, verse 5. This is a, a gruesome horror scene. A horror scene for anyone who would stumble upon it. A brutal and bloody reminder that false gods provide no protection from Yahweh. And false worship results in a horror end. The bodies scattered around the idols in bloody parody of the ritual dances that would take place around these altars. And then in chapter 6, verse 6, not only will the high places be taken down, but we get a repetition of how God will lay waste to where they dwell. Wherever you dwell, the city shall be waste and the high places ruined so that your altars will be waste and ruined. Your idols broken down and destroyed. Your incense altars cut down. Your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, clap your hands and stamp your foot and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die of pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword, and he who is left and is preserved shall die of famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them. 
This is a picture of complete wipeout. No stone is left unturned. No life escapes. All shall feel the fire of God's fury. And it's too late to do anything about it. This is the confronting news of chapter 7. Many people think of the message of uh, the prophets as, Repent, the end is near. But Ezekiel's message in this chapter is this. It's too late to repent. The end has come. Thus says the Lord God, Disaster after disaster. Behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It has wakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near, a day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. There are no more second chances. They have had their moment for the past 430 years to turn things around. 430 years from the time of Ezekiel goes back to about the time the temple was built by Solomon. 430 long years to listen to what the other prophets and the law had spoken. And now judgment had arrived. No more second chances. The patience of God had run out. In chapter 7, verses 10 to 27, again, we see the comprehensiveness of God's judgment unfold. In verse 11, we read, None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth, neither shall there, shall there be preeminence among them. Nothing will be left, not even their preeminence, their pride will be destroyed. And then in verses 12 to 27, we see a, a parallel series of thoughts, again, flattening any hope. In verses 12 to 13, we see a parallel to verse 19 to 20, stealing away any hope that money or gold or any financial security will keep them safe. It doesn't matter what they can sell, what savings they have, what retirement nest egg they have built up. It will be worthless in the face of God's judgment. Verses 14 to 16 parallel with verses 21 to 24, with the repeated announcement again of the war and devastation to follow. Sword and famine will kill. The pestilence of disease will ravage. Survivors will, will run for the hills, moaning over their sins. A foreign nation will sweep through the land like predators. They will hunt down the people and they will profane the temple. And finally, in each parallel, we, uh, we end with terror and despair. Verse 17 to 18 parallels with verses 25 to 27. Hands will lose their strengths. Knees will turn wobbly like jelly. Kings and princes will wear the robes of despair, not royalty. The people will be paralyzed by fear. Ezekiel's point in chapters 4 to 7 is super clear, devastatingly clear. The deep wickedness of Israel is the direct cause for God's judgment on them. And that judgment will be profoundly destructive and completely justified. When God sets his face against their, his own people, what hope do they have? That God's judgment is falling on his people should be clear. But the purpose of these chapters is not simply to tell us that judgment is coming. There is a phrase that comes up again and again in this section and in the entire book, and that gives us a clear purpose for all of this judgment. 
The phrase appears in chapter 5, verse 13, in chapter 6, verse 7, in chapter 6, verse 10, verse 13, verse 14, chapter 7, verse 4, chapter 7, verse 9, and in the final words of chapter 7, verse 27 of our passage today. The judgment of God is being poured out. Devastation will reign. And in all of this, there is for one purpose, that they shall know that I am Yahweh. In the judgment, they shall know that Yahweh is Lord. False worship happens when you believe the lie that Yahweh is not supreme. It happens when sin robs God of his glory and substitute it for the lesser glory of created things. Israel had a history of treating God poorly. They bowed down before idols and the gods of the nations around them. They sacrificed their children to some of these gods. Yahweh was relegated to the bench, called upon only when Israel really needed him. Israel treated Yahweh as another option among many options that they had. And so the judgment that Yahweh was now pouring out makes sense. Yahweh will not tolerate being treated as an option among many. He will not tolerate rebellion forever. His patience with his people will run out and then Judgment comes, and when judgment comes, they shall know that Yahweh truly is Lord. Yet, it is not completely all doom and gloom. See, the phrase to know has a similar sense to the phrase remember in the Old Testament. To remember wasn't just about recalling memories, but also to act on that memory. When the remnant went into exile and saw all that Yahweh had done to his people, when they remembered that Yahweh was the one and true and living God, that Yahweh had made a covenant with them, then they would turn. They would remember and turn. They would repent. They would remember that Yahweh was the only one to whom they could turn to and seek refuge. The judgment of God is never the full stop. It is the comma leading to hopeful repentance. We see this as well in the use of Leviticus 26 from earlier. After all the judgment and gloom, we read these words. Yet for all, uh, yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. God will keep his covenant. He will bring down the curses he promised, but he will not give up on his people and completely wipe out their name. He will keep his covenant. He will make a way to bless. Anyone who repents will know that Yahweh is their God. But for those who don't, fearful judgment is all they should expect. So how? Will God keep his covenant to bless his people? How will he keep his covenant in the face of constant and consistent unfaithfulness? 
God cannot simply forgive and sweep under the carpet. That would be to deny his justice, to deny an essential part of his character. Nor does, he, nor does his love cancel out or is simply larger than his justice, for that would mean a contradiction within his character. No, as John Piper so eloquently puts it, the wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. What is that way? None other than the place, that place and moment when all of God's judgment and anger and wrath is poured out on the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross where God takes the judgment upon himself. He will send his son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, as our substitute. Jesus will come to bear the wrath and punishment that we deserve. He will be the propitiation, the, the one who turns away God's wrath from us and onto himself. As much as some Christians want to move away from this doctrine, it remains at the heart of the events of the cross. The love of God is magnified on the cross, yes, but only because the wrath of God is satisfied. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You can only understand God's love when you understand God's wrath and anger against sin and how it is turned away. Praise God that he does love us. Praise God that his wisdom has made a way for his justice to be satisfied, his wrath to be satisfied and his love to be magnified. Yet, this passage in Ezekiel is not about magnifying God's love for us about magnifying God's hatred of evil and sin. It's about warning clearly and shockingly where the breaking of his covenant will end up. And so we too must be reminded of the warning of turning our backs on Christ. After giving confidence to his readers about their faith, the writer to the Hebrews then gives a strong warning. If we turn our backs on Christ, if we adopt a life of deliberate sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Be warned, friends. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do whatever we can to encourage each other, to build each other up, to lovingly keep each other accountable so that no one turns their backs on Christ and towards judgment. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because if God is against you, who can stand up for you? Are we people who take the judgment of God seriously? I started today's message by noting that the doctrine of God's justice and wrath is under attack. It's being questioned, slowly eroded, ignored, and sometimes outright rejected. I'm aware that perhaps in our circles, this might not be news to you, and that's, that's fine. But I'm also aware, especially for those in younger generations who do a lot of reading and research online, that this lurking danger may be around the corner. 
There are plenty of Christian sites and pages that say helpful and sometimes thoughtful and relevant things, but I've become increasingly concerned by some of these same sites and the watering down of their theology, and concerned that some Christians are not discerning enough when it comes to the things that they read online. You will see it in the language of people who promote God's love and care for the poor, who write in a way to say that the cross is all about displaying God's love for us as an example of God's love. I know of some sites who basically preach this idea and neglect the judgment and justice of God. Or you'll have justice spoken about in terms of just simply social justice, of community justice, but not personal justice against our rebellion. On the pointier end, you may come across people who will argue that the cross as payment for our sins is abhorrent, an act of an angry God, an act of cosmic child abuse. If you ever sit through a sermon where you think the judgment and justice of God is being watered down, or if you have a friend who isn't comfortable with the idea of judgment because God is a God of love, then just gently ask them, how much does it cost your God to love you? I'm willing to bet that they will answer nothing. It doesn't cost God anything to love me. And then you can reply, oh, my God is much more loving than that. It costs my God the life of his son to love me. Today's passage is a, a big reminder of that. We cannot properly understand the cross of Christ. We cannot properly see God's love displayed without understanding the weight of God's wrath and judgment against sin. Now, from ignoring or denying God's judgment to embracing it, let me ask us if we really do take the judgment of God seriously. Have we felt the weight of how offensive our sin is to God? Do we take the sin in our lives seriously? Or do we presume upon God's mercy, saying, of course God will forgive me, it's his job. Friends, that is a very dangerous place to be. But if we grasp the weight of our problem, if we are, we are then in a good place to live rightly in response. On July 8th, 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut, Jonathan Edwards preached his most famous sermon in a cheerful title. It had the cheerful title of this, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You can probably guess the tone of the sermon. Edwards preached this sermon to a church and town which was largely cold to the gospel. A church and town that had forgotten the weight of their sin and the deep problem that they had with God. And as he preached, the response was extraordinary. Here are a few select quotes from that sermon that remind us of the weighty nature of our sin and how offensive it is to God. Will we have ears to hear this? Your wickedness 
makes you as it were as heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf, and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Edward started his sermon, but he could not finish it. The impact of his sermon was immediate. People listened and shrieked and cried out. Crying and weeping became so loud, with many constantly yelling out, What must I do to be saved? It was so loud that Edwards was forced to stop his sermon. Many came to a saving knowledge of Jesus that day. Only when we see how deeply offensive is our sin will we truly appreciate and embrace tightly the grace and love of God that he has for us in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, help us to hear. Help us to hear these weighty words. Help us to hear these weighty words and respond by crying out to you for mercy. To know how much our sin is deeply and grossly offensive to you. We've seen that your, your judgment being poured out upon your nation, your people, who have broken your covenant. And while we thank you that in Christ we have an everlasting covenant, one that cannot be broken, we pray that you'll help us to take these words seriously, to feel their weight, and to recognize all the more what Christ has done and achieved for us on the cross. He has taken away our sin and our guilt and our shame. He has borne it on himself, a heavy load that we could never bear. So we ask, Father, that you'll help us to hear these things, to recall these things, and to live with greater and deeper joy in you. For we ask these things for your glory and our joy in and through Jesus' most beautiful name. Amen.